Hello, and welcome to Sleep Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios with Emily Peck of Axios. Hi, hi. With Elizabeth Spires of Slate, New York Times, etc. Hello. And we are going to talk about Sam Bankman-Fried this week because he is guilty. Guilty as charged on all counts. We are going to talk about brokerage fees, not on your stocks and bonds, but rather on your house, how much you pay the brokers and the National Association of Realtors and their cartel, all of that kind of stuff. We are going to talk about the UAW deal. Uh, There is no longer an auto strike. That has now been done. We have a whole Slate Plus segment on budgeting. It is a meaty, awesome show this week. So it's all coming up on Slate Money. So guilty on all charges. There are going to be more charges next year. There's another trial next year. I think... I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say he's probably going to be found guilty on those charges too. Um, but even just on these ones, there were seven, and if you add them all up, they um, there's a maximum jail time of well over a century. Sam Bankman-Fried, from hero to, well, I don't know if he was ever a hero. Some people thought of him as a hero, to definitely the most spectacular white-collar convicted criminal since Bernie Madoff. And there are very few others who are even in the same league. I was trying to think about this. I was thinking back to the days when, you know, Rudy Giuliani was um, going after Ivan Bosky and Mike Milken and that kind of stuff. And I feel like this is significantly bigger and more important than even those. Yeah. I mean, the fact that if he got the maximum on all those charges, he would have over 100 years in jail. I don't think I can maybe Madoff had a similar kind of sentence, but not those other guys. Milken runs a conference now. Sam Bankman-Fried. <laughs> I don't think he'll ever run a conference. Do you? No. Well, he did run a conference. He didn't. He doesn't I mean, need to do it again because he he did one before with Anthony Scaramucci. <laughs> right, but post conviction, I don't think he's running any conferences. Or I, I wouldn't put it past him if he gets out of jail at the same age as Mike Milken. I'm sure he's going to rehabilitate himself and do an effective altruism. I have no idea. The, yeah, the guy <laughs> the guy doesn't seem to have remorse or shame. No, he, really. be, he behaves like he doesn't really think he did anything wrong. And I'm sure he did not endear himself to the jury. He apparently told the prosecutor that he would answer questions the way that he thought the questions should be asked. Definitely being condescending to the prosecutor, I'm sure, did not. Oh, during the, the, the cross-examination. Yeah. yeah, like he he took the stand because... He basically had nothing to lose by taking the stand. I think there was he was always going to wind up wind up getting found guilty on everything, and he tried his best, I guess, but his best wasn't remotely good enough, and he still wound up getting. Um, we'll we'll see what the judge winds up sentencing him to. It's an interesting question, but I think we can all assume it's going to be a long time in prison. Why was his defense so lame? So the prosecution put up over a dozen witnesses. We all read about their testimony. It was powerful. It was all these, it was one of those roll-up scenarios where his deputies and former friends all testified against him and pled guilty. Good stuff. Then the defense, it was just three witnesses, one of which was SBF, by all accounts did a terrible job, came off as condescending and kind of the exact opposite of the way he liked to portray himself as like, 
wunderkind. Um, it was like disastrous for him. Why was this defense so bad? I think his defense was so bad because he just was out of options at that point. Um, there was a lot of speculation before the trial about like what on earth is, is his defense going to be given that everyone who worked with him has already pled guilty, right? Yeah. And like, if they're all like, I'm guilty, I'm guilty, I'm guilty, I'm guilty, the chances of the CEO and founder being not guilty are basically zero at that point. I think, I think it was just, you know, the defense was dealt an incredibly bad hand and there was really nothing they could have done to avoid this outcome. And it was, so, it was such a fast trial. There was like 15 days of testimony and the jury came back with a verdict in four and a half hours for a white-collar trial that is extremely speedy. Right. Well, we'll talk later about another speedy verdict. <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was a really fast verdict. And even from the outside, if you weren't sitting in the courtroom just reading the coverage, it seemed like it was going terribly for him. Probably the reason the defense was so bad is because this shouldn't have gone to trial in the first place. My man should have pled guilty, Right. Well, I mean, there's, I, I don't think, again, like, I don't think there was any upside in pleading guilty. There was never a plea deal on the table. I feel like all of this talk uh, about why didn't he take a plea is like, well, they never offered a plea. That's why he never took a plea. Uh, and like, if he had take, if he had pled guilty, then, you know, the judge would have just, you know, assumed he was guilty because he pled guilty and given him the same sentence he's going to wind up with anyway. I don't think he had anything to lose by going to trial. I don't know. Given his charming personality, I feel like uh, if there had been a plea on the table, he might get a reduced sentence. He seems to sure. If there had been a plea on the table, everyone. but th there wasn't. There never was. By all accounts, there never was. I mean, they kind of tore apart the prosecution. His so-called charming personality, right? I mean, it's easy to be charming when everyone thinks you're a billionaire, and when everyone doesn't think you're a billionaire, the stuff that was once charming is no longer so. That's why he comes off as what the words are arrogant or condescending um, in that testimony. I bet if you go back and look at speeches from him or conversations with him, he might come across the same way. It just comes across different when you're. Well, you it's know, also, it's art. also that like he's talking about different things, right? No one ever said that he was charming when he was trying to defend his own actions against accusations of you know fraud. People said he was charming when he would talk to all of the journalists and give them a lot of access and say, you know, disarming things about how a lot of crypto was fraudulent. And then everyone said, oh, my God, isn't that charming how, like, a crypto billionaire is happy to admit that a lot of crypto is fraudulent? And that was, you know, and then he'd say charming things to, you know, to, like, Michael Lewis and people about how he was going to give away his billions and save millions of lives and all of this kind of stuff. And when you're spinning um, that kind of tale, it's a lot easier to persuade people that you are worth listening to and, and reliable than, than when you are very much on the back foot. Yeah. Although in, in Zeke Fox's book, Number Go Up, he sounds completely insufferable. And I don't know if it was just, you know, Fox had a different experience with him, but uh, he he doesn't come off as particularly likable in that book. And this was before everything came crashing. I think up. most of that book is after. Like most of the conversations between SBF and Zeke Fox happen after the collapse of FTX. But yeah, I mean... It's not like he was universally liked beforehand. Certainly not. There was no one in crypto who was universally liked. Um, but there was a large fall. Um, and part of the fall came from, I think, the you know explosive 
text message interview which he gave to to Vox, where he basically came out and said, "Yeah, all of that stuff about effective altruism and saving lives it was it was just a shibboleth. It was something that I said in order to get the right people on board." And at that point, I think all of the sympathy just drained away. Right. And there was more of that at the trial, right? When when we learned that he drove the crappy car because he knew the optics of that were really good for him. And he dressed in a schlumpy way because he thought it, it would get him a bigger bonus at his, at his last job, you know, before he founded FTX. Like it was all a facade. It was all a ploy and a play. And And of course, the biggest facade of all was this idea that he was a successful hedge fund trader, right? The founding of FTX was kind of built on the success of Alameda Research, which was his hedge fund. And one of the things which I think has kind of gone unexamined, and I don't know if we'll ever really get to the bottom of it, given how shoddy all of the record keeping was at FTX and Alameda, is that it is entirely plausible, and I certainly believe, that Alameda was losing money all along. That you know, there was this one famous arbitrage trade very mm -hmm. early on where he'd like buy bitcoins in America and sell them in Japan or something, and it was like very labor intensive. And he made a little bit of money on that, and he he started um, trading, you know, after that. And it's not clear that he ever made money after he founded FTX on the hedge fund. And in fact, the question arises: How did FTX? grow so quickly? Why was FTX so popular among traders? What was it that made it go from zero to like the second biggest crypto exchange in the world almost overnight? And one likely reason is that in aggregate, everyone who wasn't Alameda was making money on FTX because Alameda was losing money to everyone else. And because everyone was on the exchange and making money and basically making money off Alameda, they just kept on pouring more and more money into FTX. And Alameda's losses just grew bigger and bigger. And they were basically just stealing money from FTX clients, you know, Ponzi style, in order to cover their own losses. And so long as the inflows kept on inflowing, no one needed to ever know. Wait, how how would Alameda be losing money? I don't understand what you're saying. You Alameda was trading on FTX. <laughs> All of yeah. Alameda's trades were done on FTX. They were like the main liquidity provider of FTX. Oh, so they're so whenever, Exactly. So everyone else on FTX in a sort of you know stylized, simplified manner was trading against Alameda. Ah. And if Alameda was losing money, then everyone else on FTX was making money. But then FTX was just stealing it back. Exactly. <laughs> Cheapers. Cheapers and Jiminy. Um, <laughs> well, what is this? Do we do we do the thing where we say, what does it all mean? Is crypto, we've done that already, right? We've said, we've said what it all means. Crypto is in decline maybe, but Bitcoin well, so, has I mean, been soaring all month. So I don't know. Bitcoin has been soaring all month. So like, so there are two different ways of looking at this. And I'm, I'm super interested in which, which camp you, you find yourself in. Um, one is that we have now had, you know, big lawsuits against Gemini and Gem Genesis and Binance. Um, we have SBF being convicted of multiple crimes. Like all of the big names in crypto seem to have 
imploded. There's, you know, suits against Coinbase as well. I think, honestly, probably the only one that's left standing and smells vaguely clean is Circle. But, you know, that's just a quasi-dollar. It's not obvious, like, that there's much, you know, crypto excitement around Circle. And Coinbase, um, too. I mean, Tether still... is still pretty stable. Well, Tether is stable as a price, but I, I don't think anyone really believes in... Everyone kind of still believes that there's another shoe to drop on the Tether. No, like, Tether has not come out and persuaded anyone with, like, th that it's legit. No one really knows where all of its money is. There's a lot of huge questions around Tether to this day. Um, and everyone knows there's huge questions around Tether. Um, so so the Tether question is is still like a big question mark, and no one's ever going to say, well, crypto is fine because Tether is clearly fine. You know? well, what about Coinbase? Now do Coinbase. So coin, <laughs> yeah, Coinbase is um, effectively a custodian, right? It, it's a little bit like your brokerage account, but for crypto. You can you can have um, your account at Coinbase, and you can have Bitcoins and Ether and Solana and whatever yeah. you want in there, and even Tether if you want. I'm not sure if you can have Tether, actually. And I probably believe, in fact, I do believe, that Coinbase is not stealing those coins. And that, <laughs> you know, if you think you have coins on Coinbase, then you do have coins on Coinbase. And if you want them back, you can have them back. And if everybody asked for their coins on Coinbase back, they would get all of their coins on Coinbase back because Coinbase hasn't done anything with them. Coinbase hasn't lent them out. Coinbase hasn't speculated with them, right? This counts as like gold star platinum level <laughs> company in the <laughs> space. Has committed fraud as far as we know. <laughs> Not stealing customer funds. Like, to be clear, it has allegedly committed various securities law violations. Like, you know, there are lawsuits against Coinbase and, and these are working their way through through the courts. But the heart of what Coinbase does is it basically just gives you a place on the internet. It, it's a bank account. It gives you a place mm -hmm. on the internet where you can store your crypto. And that's nice. Well, it's also... It's a public company. But what are you supposed to do with your crypto after you've stored it on Coinbase? You know, it just kind of sits there in this Coinbase box. And you're like, great. Can you sell it on Coinbase? Sure. <laughs> but I think using Coinbase as a trading venue mm -hmm. is not something that many sophisticated crypto types would want to do. Because whenever you buy or sell crypto on Coinbase, their cut is very large. Mm. Um, it's a little bit like um, Robinhood in that respect. Like I think Robinhood is somewhere where people keep a lot of crypto and they make a fair amount of money from trading crypto. Um, and I don't think they're fraudulent in that respect. But if you're a serious crypto trader, you don't trade on Coinbase or Robinhood because the bid offer spreads are enormous. Uh, how many traders do we think are really sophisticated traders as a percentage of overall liquidity? Oh, I would say like 95%. I think, I think, yeah, like trying to, if, if you're serious about trading crypto, like there's no, it's not like one of those things where you need to have a lot of money in order to be able to access the, the places like Binance and FTX that allow sophisticated traders to do sophisticated things, right? Anyone can do it. But yeah, I think I think the kind of people who trade crypto, who are moving in and out of various coins and trying to understand where the buzz is moving, are the kind of people who would 
not want to try and attempt that using a kludgy platform like Coinbase or Robinhood. It's funny that you associate sophisticated traders with FTX, considering what happened. So when I say sophisticated, I don't mean money-making. I mean, you know, I, I, when I say sophisticated, I mean people using, you know, derivatives and leverage and um, trading strategies that, that involve moving in and out of assets and coins, you know, on a sort of time horizon of days rather than years. Okay. Complicated, fast moving. There's no, there's no particular reason to believe you know, for, for any normal person to think, well, I think Coinbase, I think Bitcoin is going down right now, so I'm going to sell it, and then I think it's going to go up, so I'm going to buy it. Like the Bitcoin price is so unpredictable and volatile that you need to be deeply in that world to try and trade that. Sophisticated. That, that's that's how I'm using the word. I'm not saying okay. that like you know, um, but one of the one of the things that I feel like has happened over the course of the crypto winter is that first with the implosion of Three Arrows and then with the implosion of Alameda, um, everyone who we thought was a profitable, sophisticated trader turns out to have blown up. And the naive view of crypto trading, which I had, which was basically there is no signal to trade on because it's all just numbers and none of them are based on anything real. Um, turns out to have been largely true. I don't think you can have alpha in crypto trading. Like, um, yeah, Mike Novogratz famously, you know, was this trader. He came from like Goldman Sachs and um, he's like, I don't care if it's going up or going down. I'm a trader. I can trade anything and I can go long and I can go short and I'll just trade any market and crypto is the best market in the world to trade. And then he got a Luna tattoo on his arm and then Luna went to zero. Who's a winner in the SBF case? Just U.S. The prosecutors, definitely. The, 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 watching, you know, the state and federal attorneys general do their victory lap on Thursday night and saying, you know, tapping, tapping themselves on the back and saying, "Oh yeah, it, people should know that they shouldn't commit crimes because then they will go to prison." You're like, mm-hmm. yeah, they. It, it's it. It feels good for them. The like the the one view is that like everything has imploded and there's nothing left. But there is this other view which is basically that if everything if all of the big famous players from FTX to 3 Arrows to Gemini to Genesis have all had their comeuppance and yet, you know, Bitcoin is still at $35,000 and various other coin values are high and there is some semblance of life in the cryptoverse yet, then this is a sign that it's real and it can survive anything and that which doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Yeah, I think the optimistic view would be that all these implosions are shaking out the amateurs. I'm not sure I buy that, but... Well, I mean, they're shaking out the professionals, but the the question is like whether somehow the amateurs can rescue it, like if they're the last people standing. Well, I don't know if it's just amateurs left. The hucksters are gone. That's good. We want that. You want the bubble to burst and just and just see what the market actually is post that. Right, but who's 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 the professional? Who's the non-huckster mm. in this market? I don't know. The hucksters are the ones that, you know, went out there and marketed themselves. The professionals probably 
just chilling behind the scenes and not making a big splash because they don't need to be like that. I, I do think there's one professional who has retained his reputation and has a very positive reputation, which remains unsullied. Um, and only one I can think of. And that's Vitalik Buterin, the oh, guy right. who founded Ether. And one of the interesting things about Vitalik is that he's just a pure coder and never asked anyone for money for anything. He never came out and said, like, put money into this, put money into that. You know, he, he's just like, here's the thing. It's Ether. Go knock yourself out. And people will, you know, airdrop him tokens. And he's like, great, thank you for all of this money. I'm giving it to Doctors Without Borders or whatever, you know. And it's just like, well done, Vitalik, for, like, not trying to leverage the gains. You know, he's already worth more money than he'll ever be able to spend. So, like, he doesn't need to make more. In in stark contrast to someone like Barry Selbert, who made this incredibly smart bet very early on in, on Bitcoin, in like 2011, 2012, and just went all in on Bitcoin and made billions of dollars from just being very smart on, or being very lucky on in terms of buying lots of Bitcoin when it was incredibly cheap, when it was like $1 or less per Bitcoin, and who nevertheless decided that he wanted to build this whole leveraged company with lending and borrowing and all of the rest of it, and then wound up in you know, this billion dollar hole and no one knows how he's going to get out of it and he's being sued by the, you know, SEC and and all the rest of it. And you're like, why do you need to do that when you've already made so much money on Bitcoin? You know, what's the point? It reminds me of our conversation that Slate Money listeners haven't heard yet about GameStop where it's like, you you could just make a bunch of money and get out right now. What What are you doing? Why are you going for more? People just can't help themselves. Well, I mean, I not by sense? definition, if if everyone did that, then no one would make any money. Like it's it's right, it's, right. You, yes. you're, you need to be like the one, but you need to get out before everyone else. Right, but most people don't get out before everyone else. Well, by definition, yeah, by definition. <laughs> Do you feel sorry for him? I mean, I don't think Sam Bankman-Fried should go to jail for a hundred years. That's ridiculous. Obviously, right? Obviously ridiculous. No one's dead. criminal. Ju- the, the, the one, the one <laughs> thing I always pedal out, you know, in these discussions, and we've had them many times on this show, is the entire U.S. criminal justice system yeah. is broken, and sentencing is broken, and the amount of time that Americans go to prison for crimes, whatever the crime is, is is too long, yeah. and it's broken. And the idea that we should single out the white-collar criminals as having excessive sentences when we don't do that every day for all of the other criminals seems like a double standard. And mildly racist, to be honest. I don't. I don't think anyone's sentence should be a hundred years. Yeah, me neither. Right. Exactly. Uh, to, to be clear, we don't usually talk about the other, other cri- criminals and their their sentences on slate money. Exactly, and that's so, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So uh, we're on the same page. Phew. Phew. <laughs> anyway, um, let's let's segue, shall we, into um, the other big jury verdict of the week. Let's do that after some. Let's have some ads first. Emily, you've been following this very closely and assiduously. There was a federal ju- jury in... Kansas City. Kansas City. Missouri. Mm-hmm. We have to clarify because <laughs> there are two of Kansas them. Kansas City, Missouri. A federal jury in Kansas City, uh, Missouri, 
um, found that the National Association of Realtors, the big trade group, the powerful real estate trade group, conspired to keep broker fees high. Um, and they awarded $1.8 billion in damages, which could be even more because there's an option to treble, which means triple the damages. Um, <laughs> and uh, Are you translating British into American for the slate money? Treble, folks? yes. I was surprised no one edited the word treble in my story, but I was like, all right, cool. Um, <laughs> and they came back really fast with that verdict. And, you know, uh, the TLDR is the, the verdict um, could really shake up the way buying and selling real estate works in the United States. So my first question is, does the Nat National Association of Realtors have $1.8 billion? So they even have the ability to pay this fine? Yeah, I don't. I don't think so. <laughs> they have millions of dollars, but I don't know if they have $1.8 billion. So that's a, good, a great question. And I, I mean, the judge could lower the, the amount here. And they'll obviously... But, 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 but even if they, he lowers it by a lot, like I feel like on some level, this fine is never going to get paid because that, it, that, that sum of money just doesn't exist. And so... What happens to the NAR if it files for bankruptcy, which it might well have to? I, you know, I'm not saying you know this, but there does seem to be this feeling in the water. Can you have a feeling in the water? I don't know. I'm just going to say feeling in the water that um, that things are going to change in a profound way. That the NAR is going to lose a lot of the power that it has over the listing service MLS. That all of the people who've wanted to disrupt um, real estate brokerage fees are going to be given the opportunity to, to disrupt those fees. Most importantly, that people buying houses, home buyers, will be able to negotiate how much they pay their own agent, which up until now they basically haven't been able to do at all. Yeah, let's explain to listeners in case they don't know um, the fees at issue, right? When um, you list your house for sale, you agree to pay a fee to not only your agent who's helping you sell your house, but to the agent that represents the buyer of your house, which is weird um, if you think about it because the buyer's agent is negotiating kind of against the interest of the seller. They're trying to bring down the price. You're trying to bring and that, up. And that fee is set by your agent, by the seller's agent. And it's yes. like the seller's agent... 100% does not have the buyer's best interest at heart, and yet right. it's the seller's agent who is setting the fee that the buyer's agent is being paid. And that is just really weird. Yeah, it's like as if the prosecutors of Sam Bankman-Fried were paying Sam Bankman-Fried's defense attorneys or something, you know? Exactly, yeah. Um, and the fee is pretty high, so it's like 5 to 6%, and then the buyer and seller agents split it. And you might not even realize it if you're buying a house that that's happening. Like, it's pretty... It's not something that's talked about. Um, it's negotiated in advance of you buying the house because the seller is the one who agrees to it and they kind of have to agree to it. That's one thing. And then we could talk about what the NAR does maybe separately. But anyway, th that's that's what's at issue in these cases, the fees. And it adds a lot of money to um, a home sale transaction, right? Right. A large, a significant chunk of the money that you borrow in a mortgage, you think that you're borrowing the money to buy the house. Mm -hmm. And to a large extent, you are. But you're also borrowing a bunch of extra money to pay your own agent and, indeed, the seller's agent. Like, a whole, yeah. all of those fees get, like, 
rolled up into the selling price of the house and you wind up literally in debt for the next 30 years to pay off those fees that you paid those agents. And those fees are so much higher than they are in basically any other um, country on planet Earth. Yeah, and this is happening in a market where the cost of home buying is just bonkers right now. So this alone will shave a little bit off of what home buyers are having to pay right now. Hopefully. I mean, the the real estate lobby wants you to think like it's going to somehow make home buying more expensive. So no one knows exactly what's going to happen as a result of this verdict. Like how, like everyone is saying home buying and selling is going to change. The fee structure is going to change, but no one knows exactly how it's going to change, which I think is freaking everyone out. Um, the National Association of Realtors is saying if if something happens where buyers have to like pay these fees like out their own pockets, then, and Felix wrote about that, wrote about this, then it'll be really bad for lower income home buyers who can't afford that extra money. Like they're already paying a big down payment. They can't afford on top of that to pay any kind of fee to a buyer's agent. Um, but that's a little bit disingenuous because you could just like change the rules around a little bit, fold that fee into your mortgage and that kind of thing. And also, I just feel like the whole job of buyer's agent is one that kind of it's a lot of money for not a huge amount of work and that a bunch of people could probably get 95% of the value that most buyer's agents provide just by using an AI. Yeah, I mean, and the way home buying works now is like you go on the, online, you look at home, you know, you look at listings you find the house you want, and then you reach out to an agent. Like a lot of the work used to be pre-internet, the agent would like show you like, these are the houses for sale. You wouldn't even know. Now you know. <laughs> it's really important to, to note this. It used to be that MLS, the listing service, was this thing that only agents had access to. And so you needed an access an agent to be able to know what was on the market. Today, there's a gazillion websites out there, all of which are showing photos and descriptions and everything of all of the houses that are on the market. So anyone can find them on the internet. But as Emily is about to say, there is one crucial piece of information that is only on MLS and is not on any of the online listings. I was actually going to say, it's important to note that though we're like, we don't need MLS anymore because Redfin and Zillow exist. Redfin and Zillow are pulling all their, almost all their information, most of their information from those multiple listing services, which the NAR controls. So it's like, we don't need the NAR, but actually all the listings are coming from inside the house. But the (laughs) one thing that you're not allowed to put on the MLS listing when you put it online. So if you see the listing on Zillow, if you see the listing on Berkshire Hathaway Real Estate or Mm -hmm. whatever, the wherever you see the listing, it's being pulled from MLS, but it has stripped out that one crucial piece of information, which is how much am I going to pay the seller's broker? I was just going to note that uh, Zillow was down 6.9% on the verdict because of this. Yes, Zillow and Redfin, all the real estate public company stocks fell on the verdict, but I feel like in the long term, Zillow, Redfin, they win from this because... If if buyers agents go away as like the the people helping you buy a house, where are people going to turn? They're going to turn to 
the big real estate portals online. The the CEO of Zillow said that this week on a call. And I mean, of course, he's like talking his own book or whatever, but stands to reason, makes sense, right? Yeah, I, I don't entirely understand why the Zillow and Redfin stocks fell. It doesn't make yeah. obvious sense to me um, because, yeah, they're the would-be disruptors. They're the people who have always positioned themselves as this is a cartel and we want to, you know, come in as the cheaper disruptor and get a bunch of market share. And they've been stymied by the fact that NAO is the cartel that controls the MLS. If that cartel is broken up, they're the obvious winners in this game. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm kind of with Emily on this one. But Elizabeth, maybe you understand more intuitively like why they went down rather than up. Uh, I don't. Actually, it doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> yeah, because if, okay, so the NAR de facto basically controls these multiple listing services where all this information is warehoused. And the if those, if for some reason the NAR goes away, which I don't think it's going to go away, but who knows, um, an MLS goes away, then Zillow, Redfin, they're the ones now controlling the listing information. They can start selling, um, you know, they'll start charging um for agents to list homes on their websites, they could make a ton of money. That's kind of what the Zillow CEO said. He said, I don't think it's likely, but we could become true portals where you have to pay to play, you know, like a yeah, real classified. I, I feel like charging for listings is not where this is going to go. I feel like, it, well, my ideal world would be a world where MLS becomes a kind of wiki. You know, and that any agent selling a house can upload their house to the MLS, which is collectively owned by all the agents and is not a for-profit um, thing, but where all of the information on that site is available to anyone for free. And then when you want to sell a house, you hire an agent or you don't um, who, you know, and you negotiate the fee to, who, and that one of the things that agent will do will upload your, your listing to that site. Um and all the other things that agents do. And then when you want to buy a house, you you hire an agent or you don't. But whether you ha whether or not you have an agent, you have access to that site. You can see what's on the market. You can approach the, the seller or the seller's agent and say, like, I'm interested in this. Can I buy it? And it just becomes much more democratized. And the agents have to really sell their services to home buyers and home sellers as saying, well, yeah, you're going to pay me $20,000 and it's worth it because ABC and then that can be negotiated. And if you're in that world, I think fees come down dramatically. Yeah. It, it seems like fees coming down is, de is almost definitely going to be the result of this. Even, even if no rules actually change um, from this verdict, I think there, there's a push already to be more transparent about them, to let people negotiate What's them. What's the, the time frame though? Like when are the free fees going to come down? I think a, I think ASAP, first of all, because the market is crap <laughs> right now. And I think agents, what I've heard is agents are already negotiating fees, like um, low-key offering to lower their fees because um, real estate agents are pretty pretty desperate right now. Home sales are at historic lows. Um, they're lucky to sell anything or help anyone buy anything at this point. So there's been a lot of that just going on separate from this trial. And I think as a result of this trial, like there were some real estate brokers who settled before the trial and they they agreed to, you know, have agents be more transparent about fees up front and let people negotiate the fees. And I 
feel like a natural result of all of that is going to be slightly lower fees for everyone buying homes. There is one other area of like Elizabeth was saying that it's incredibly expensive to to buy a home right now, and those upfront fees, and I never mind the mortgage prices. Um, the one huge scam that just needs to go away, um, which is not quite as big as broker's fees, but is enormous and is a complete scandal and should not exist in this country at all, is title insurance. Oh, yeah. What is that? It's this absolute scam where whenever you buy a house, you need to pay a four-figure sum for this dumb thing called title insurance where, where these insurers will sell you in title insurance, which basically says, um, in theory, what it says is, um, you think you own this, but what if someone else comes along and says that they own it and the, the person you bought it from didn't really own it and then there's a dispute over who owns the property, we will like insure you against that eventuality. And, and like the mortgage companies won't give you a mortgage unless you have title insurance. But it's ludicrously expensive and basically they never, ever pay out. Like it's one of those insurance policies where, you know, it's just they're insuring against a thing that never happens. Yeah, it sounds like this This is a thing that originated in the Middle Ages where somebody might just, you know, yes. uh, move into your property and say, I'm the owner now. But how would that happen now? I'd and like you know, and you can't shop around for title insurance. You know, when you get your mortgage, the bank just says, "Oh, you need to buy title insurance from like this insurer," and then and you go, "Oh, do I?" And then the insurer goes, <laughs> "Yes, that'll be three thousand dollars, please." And you're like, "Well, do I have a choice?" And they're like, "No, if you want a mortgage, you need to pay this." And you're like, "Shit!" <laughs> Why can't they just fold it into the homeowner's insurance? Like, add a little extra thing in there. Then it wouldn't be a scammy, Emily. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, the no, whole it's process a, it's of a buying a home scam. in the U.S. is pretty scammy, right? Can we agree? Yes. Yeah. Although yes. I was thinking about um, everyone should read Felix's piece this week on fees. Um, but like the buyer's agent, if you get a good one, they really do provide a level of service that is hard to find elsewhere in the 2023 economy where like you can't get a real person on the phone. No one wants to help you buy anything. You go into a store, you're on your own. Like a good buyer's agent does hold your hand and really kind of helps you. I mean, it's not yeah, the worst thing to have these people around. For first-time right, so, home buyers, it's probably very valuable because the process is overwhelming. It's overwhelming. Wait, what, it's like you okay, got to get so, an inspector, so, you got to get a lawyer, you got to do this. There's title insurance. What's that? I don't know. Like, there's a lot to do. No, th th look, it's a service. <laughs> but yeah. Elizabeth, like when you say very valuable, like there are two different ways of viewing that, right? One is um, it's valuable as in like it's something that people value on a sort of emotional and practical level. Like, oh, I'm very glad I had that buyer's agent because I had I was lucky enough to find a good one rather than the bad one, and they helped walk me through, through the process. But then the other definition of valuable is like worth a large, an objective number of dollars. Yeah, and I think and, and 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 the question here is when you say very valuable, do you mean if you're a first first-time homeowner, that service is really worth $10,000. I, I think it depends on how you value your time. I, I think uh, it, it is for a lot of people. It's like, yeah, you don't have time to really navigate the process yourself. Or Sure, but I, I, I think the people we're talking about here, the people the NAR is talking about here, are 
you know, first time home buyers who are very cash poor and don't actually value their time that highly, who, um, you know, who would rather pants it do certain things themselves <laughs> if it saved them $10,000 because they don't have $10,000. Right. Yeah, that's fair. Right. I mean, well, it's, then, it tends to be the rich who value their time the most highly for obvious reasons. Right. But it'd still be worth it. I think it, what I'm saying is it's, I don't, a lot of people are saying now, and you kind of are saying this, Felix, that buyer's agents are going to go away and be replaced by AI or whatever. Um, I'm not sure that's a great thing. I think people, it's nice that people have help buying a house, which yeah, is I'm not the, saying they're the biggest go purchase away. of their lifetime. Uh, and and by all means, like I, if if people want to s- set out a shingle and say like I'm going to help you make that purchase, and I'm going to hold your hand, and I'm going to walk you through the process, and it's a confusing process, and I'm going to add value, and um, you know I'm a professional, and you're going to pay me, you know, however many thousand dollars for doing this, and you're like, okay, that's you know, if that's like a reasonable arm's length handshake agreement that you're, you're like saying, I think it is worth it to me to pay this amount of money to you to p- provide the service to me. That's fine. Yeah. I have absolutely no problem with people willingly paying professionals for professional services. Um, where I have a problem is when it's sort of baked in and unavoidable and you wind up having to pay all of this money, whether you like it or not. Plus right now um, the buyer's agent really isn't, they're not you think they're working for you but they're really working for the seller right because that's yeah. where their money's coming from and that's and, and also can we, yeah and also the the one of the other crazy thing about the amount that buyers agents get paid they get paid a percentage of the sale price which means they are right, incentivized exactly. to make you pay more Right. The higher, yeah. the the greater the amount of money they can persuade you to pay, the more money they make. That yep. their your your interests are not aligned with their interests at all. It's batshit. Whereas it now, if you negotiate with a buyer's agent and you're like, you know, it, there are ways in theory that you could negotiate and basically say, you know, if you save me money on the house, I'll pay you more. That would make more sense. Yeah, per save, I will pay you a percentage of the savings or something. Yeah, right. yeah, that would make more sense. Wild times in America's <laughs> courtrooms. Let's move on to much higher stakes negotiations than home buying and selling after this. Emily, the time has finally come. There was a big strike. It was resolved. All the big three automakers have now come to deals with the UAW and the UAW and Sean Fain are taking a massive victory lap. Um, It definitely seems to me, who has not been following this nearly as closely as you, that the the headline here is basically the union won and the automakers lost. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. They won. They really won. (laughs) They got um, really great raises. Um, You could slice them all different kinds of ways, but an 11% raise for the first year of the contract and then a bunch of 3% bumps until there's a final 5% bump. It's like, then there's also, they got their COLA back, their cost of living adjustments back. So on top of that 25-ish percent raise over the four and a half years, they're also going to keep pace with inflation, which means more than 25%. So so that's Um, 25% real wage increase. Yeah. Not nominal. 
Yeah, exactly. Thank you, right. Felix. Um, and then there's a $5,000 ratification bonus. Um, and then just this morning I was reading, um, I think it's one of the car companies, um, also agreed to pay back pay to striking workers, um, $100 a day that uh, were on strike, which is like, wow, that's like a real win. They're going to pay them for striking. That's in addition to money the workers got from the strike fund. Uh, they also got rid of this like two-tier wage system where newer workers had a different pay scale than older workers. They got rid of that because it, it drove a lot of resentment between workers. And you could argue it kept union workers kind of resenting each other and wasn't good for solidarity for the union. Um, and also the lowest paid union members are getting the biggest wage increases, which is kind of a big deal. Also, um, so like across the board, this is, looks like a really big win for UAW and for the new president, Sean Fain. So was there a miscalculation somewhere along the line at the automakers where if they had made slightly more effort to be worker friendly in the run up to the negotiations and ultimately the strike, they could have avoided the strike. And do you think they could have got away more cheaply? I don't think they could have gotten away more. Well, with the leadership being how it was and, and as militant as it was, it's hard to imagine in with Sean Fain leading, they could have gotten away more cheaply, like under a different UAW, they probably could have and in past they definitely have. They've they've forced all kinds of concessions out of these workers. But considering the environment we're in right now, where workers are really demanding raises, it's tight labor market, all of that, I feel like they were kind of going this way the whole time. What do you think, Elizabeth? No, I think that's that's true. Also, now the union's talking about unionizing places like Tesla or outside of the big three which that would be fun. Well, they've been talking about that all along, right? So the question is, are they more likely to be able to unionize Tesla, Honda, Nissan, you name it, even Volkswagen, you know, um, than they were a couple months ago just by dint of having got this great deal? I think so, because they've demonstrated the value of being in a union. I think uh, it's, it's great for the narrative and people's understanding of what unions bring to the table. After this deal was announced, um, Toyota said it was giving raises to most of its factory workers in the U.S., like 9% raises, and it was also cutting in half the time it takes workers to reach max pay, and that was clearly a result of these deals. So one thing you got to think is, if you're a smart automaker, you would do something like Toyota does to say, like, look, you don't need a union. Like, we'll just raise your pay depending on, you know, we'll raise your pay anyway, so you don't need to pay, like, union fees. So you wonder, like, if that runs counter to the narrative of, like, this good deal helps UAW organize workers. If the UAW has inadvertently, like, raised wages for everyone in the industry, then maybe they don't need to unionize. Did, did the union do too good a job is the question. <laughs> mm-hmm. Also, it's really hard. I, I was thinking a lot about Tesla. Like, so the UAW has been trying to organize these companies for a while and has has failed. Um, I remember Volkswagen was a big fail. A lot of these factories are in the South. The South is is a hard place to organize. It's right to work. Um, it's not easy to unionize in the United States. I mean, just look at what's been happening with Starbucks workers. The um, 
the laws, the labor laws in the U.S. are 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 not great for workers. So I know like Sean Fain's talking really tough. He's going to, you know, it's next time they're going to negotiate with the big five or the big six instead of the big three. But it's really hard, again, to organize. And Tesla specifically, I, I think Elon Musk will pull out all the union busting stops to keep it from happening. I was going to ask like what this means for car prices, and then I just gave up. I'm like, I don't actually mind what happens to car prices. Let's let's just have. <laughs> oh, a... I had an answer. I was thinking. Oh, okay. About, but just, what, but what what so, would you what you would your answer have been, Emily? Had I asked that question? Well, the wonderful Joanne Muller, who covers the auto industry for Axios, has told me that labor prices are less than ten percent of the overall cost of making cars. Whoa, that's wild. So, yeah. So I don't think it's going to have a big impact. The estimates I saw were like a thousand per car, which I don't know if that's correct. And even if it is correct, then if in light of how much car prices and auto prices have increased over the past two, three years, I don't, I don't actually think it's a big deal. Like labor accounts for a thousand dollars of the price of the car or the increase that they just got will increase the price of a car by $1,000? The increase that they just got will increase the price of a car by $1,000, which isn't a lot. Cars cost a lot of money now. I don't know if people know that. Yeah, don't buy a car if you don't have to. <laughs> or a house, really. <laughs> or a right. house, yeah. Yeah, at least when you buy a car. Well, car sales. This is, this is my theory other, for why the- other episode about the car salesman. Yeah, this is why the economy is doing so well. People aren't throwing like 90% of their net worth into buying a car or a house and they're just like, yeah, I can make do without. Just buy Taylor Swift tickets. <laughs> Let's have a numbers round. Emily, what's your number? 1.08. That's a number of lies told per day according to research I read in this fun blog post on the conversation and research from let me get this right, an assistant professor of social media data analytics at the University of Oregon. Here's the thing about these lie studies, though. They ask people to tell them how much they lie, which <laughs> if they're liars, who the hell knows what any of this means? Wait, this is 1.08 so really per what, hour, minute, uh, day, per day, week, per day. day. 1.08 lies per day. Um, and what's interesting about this guy's specific study is he looked at the medium in which you are communicating to see if the medium influences the message, if you recall Annie Hall, Marshall McLuhan. Anyway, people tend to lie more um, when they talk in person or over the phone or on video chat um, in re when they're having real-time conversations. Uh, they lie less uh, over email and text because... I don't know, because they're writing. Email especially is the is the medium where people are least it's, likely it's, to lie. It's more considered. You can you can carefully dissemble when you're emailing in a way yeah. that it's harder to do in real time. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, there you go. So if you want to really get to the to the bottom of something, I guess you email with the person. You don't you don't talk to them face to face because they're just gonna lie. They're lie to you. Oh, and the other thing is most of the lives are kind of harmless. Like when you eat a muffin that someone has baked and you say, like, this is the best muffin I've ever had. Stuff like that. It's is not. that a lie? I guess it well, I don't know. I mean, That's I don't know. Sometimes probably. If the muffin Elizabeth, is really terrible, you... I guess it's a lie. <laughs> <laughs> if the muffin if the muffin is extremely good, but it's not technically the best muffin you've ever had, is that right. still a lie? Maybe hyperbole. Is hyperbole a lie? I don't think exactly. so. Exactly. It's hyperbole. Yeah. <laughs> if, 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 if hyperbole is a lie, then I'm telling you that most of my slate money introductions are lies. Hey, How now. many lies have you told during this podcast? 
<laughs> well, you want you want the truth. <laughs> See, right there, it's just it's it's unknowable. <laughs> um, Elizabeth, what's your number? Uh, my number is thirty six, and that's percent. And it's the number is uh, between two thousand nineteen and twenty twenty two. Annual average daily walking trips fell by thirty six percent, particularly oh, no. in metro areas in the Midwest. And the theory is that these places have all become much hotter, and so people don't like to walk as much, uh, which is concerning because then it implies that walking may eventually just be a recreational activity. I had no have. idea that people walked in the Midwest. That's amazing. Wow. So it's all over the country that walking is, is less well, what, what is? Wait, I, I want to know, what is a walking trip? What, what are we talking about here? Uh, we're talking about like walking there, to school? There is a... So it's um, any outdoor travel on foot totaling at least 250 meters. I don't know meters. What does that mean, Felix? What is yeah. 820 feet. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking you were going to say it declined because of like remote work or something. Because I know well, I feel, I that, I feel like now. there was a major pandemic between 2019 and 2022, which could provide a certain amount of explanatory power here beyond, you know, very, very long-term things about global warming. I suppose so, but how many people walk to work? But, like, I used to go to the office and I would, like, walk, you know, to get lunch and all that stuff, and now I just walk downstairs. I do think that the <laughs> pandemic virtualized a lot of things that haven't come back. Um, people became more comfortable with doing things through screens or just they wound up doing things through screens out of necessity which they might have walked to in the past. And then once they got into the habit of doing it through a screen, they just can continue to do it through a screen rather than walking. I feel like that, given the years that you're talking about, 2019 to 2022, that seems to me to be a more likely explanation than this long-term thing that has been going on about global warming that's been going on for decades. Yeah, also, oh, cycling no. is up there. Uh, apparently, yeah. because right. of the increasing popularity of e-bikes, because it doesn't love me take my e-bikes energy um, from the person. E-bikes are fantastic. Um, my number is zero, which the number is of lies the, you told in the, in the number of lies <laughs> I've told exactly. Um, it is also the number of bank accounts that. Mike Johnson, the new Speaker of the House, has, or at least has declared on his financial disclosure. And he is definitely lying. Isn't <laughs> it just because he, his account doesn't meet the threshold for disclosure? Like he probably has a bank account, but it doesn't have that much money in it? So over the course of seven years, he's never reported a checking account. He's never reported a savings account. His wife doesn't have a checking or a savings account. None of his children do. He doesn't have any money in any investments. His latest filing shows zero assets whatsoever. His wife has two employers, both of whom are paying her a salary. He made over $200,000 last year. It, it's weird. What? Where is his money going? Under the mattress? It, <laughs> it's weird. Maybe he, yeah. Isn't that is he weird? a real person? I mean, the name Mike Johnson, when they said Mike Johnson was the Speaker of the House, I was like, that's a bot. Like, come on. <laughs> I think he just carries it around in cash and burlap sacks or something. He's got to have a bank account. I mean, don't don't you have the direct deposit from Congress or something? One one would think. One would think. 
Interesting. Um, but yeah, I feel like we should talk about this in Slate Plus. We should have a conversation about budgeting and where does all the money go and what do you do with the money in your bank account? Um, that's a segue, Emily. Yeah, we're going to talk about the cool budgets people sent us. Yes, thank you for sending us your food budgets. That was illuminating. We're going to talk about that in Slate Plus. Um, for those of you who haven't yet made the leap into Slate Plus, that's a reason to do so. Otherwise, thanks for listening. Um, thanks to Patrick Fort for producing, to Ben Richmond for pressing all manner of clever buttons here in Slate Money HQ in Brooklyn. And we'll be back. There are so many Slate Monies these days. It's awesome. <laughs>